what I want to do is just step back a little bit and look at the list of names, because of course, every name is a person. And I have to say, most of them are not very significant. Some, particularly the post-exilic ones, are a little obscure. Um, but what Matthew is doing uh, in his genealogy is very important. He's wanting to tell particularly his Jewish readers, of course, that Jesus comes from the line of Abraham. His origins date back to the father of all, Abraham, the father of the nation. And of course, it was to Abraham and his descendants that God gave his blessing. It's wonderful, isn't it, that the story of God's people starts with a promise of blessing. And Abraham was blessed in order to be a blessing. And that, of course, is picked up through the whole of the Old Testament, that line through the um, sayings in the prophets and uh, through the patriarchs that they were to be a blessing to the nations, a light to the nations. And so Matthew is reminding us of this great promise at the beginning, at the very beginning, and he's saying it is going to be fulfilled in Jesus. And the next point, of course, that Matthew's making is the the, um, as has already been shown to us because of how uh, Arthur read it so beautifully, is he's trying to highlight David, isn't he? David, the great king. And he's saying that not only is Jesus from Abraham, but he is also in the royal descent of King David. So the Messiah, the expected one, the one that they were all waiting for, had to be of royal blood great David's greater son, as we sing. And this is the necessary background to the horrific massacre that, of course, Matthew then tells us about when Herod knows that the, the king that has been born is a legitimate threat to his throne. He was just a puppet king, King Herod. And Jesus, of course, um, had come from royal blood. So in this genealogy, Matthew is giving like an overview, as Brian said, of the whole history of the people of God. So the first 14 names, generations, if you like, are the sort of the forming of God's kingdom, the beginning of, of God's uh, nation, resulting in David. And then the second is the time which perhaps we think of as the kingdom being established, um, but flourishing, but if, I, if we're honest, if we know anything about the history of the people of Israel, the rot begins to set in quite early, doesn't it? The people are rebellious, the kings aren't good, and they turn to idols and fail to put their trust in God. Eventually, of course, they then suffer God's punishment, God's judgment on them, and they go into exile. And that, of, that is really the lowest point in the nation's history. Because from there, really, um, the next, the last 14, as it were, um, is a, is, they do return to their land, but it's as an occupied people. They never again have the land for themselves. And so I think it's quite significant that it's into this sort of darkness of the history of Israel's history is into this darkness and this sort of occupation and obscurity that Jesus then comes. It is sometimes so often the case, isn't it, that God's promises are fulfilled at a time when they seem least likely to be fulfilled. 
you can imagine that for those people, perhaps God felt very distant, very absent, or certainly very inactive. And it is into that, that darkness, that occupation, that Jesus comes. And that is what we're celebrating this Advent, isn't it? We're celebrating the coming of Jesus into a world that perhaps can seem at times dark, can seem at times as though God is not so active. We're living, as it were, in occupied territory, in a culture that is not our own, and we are praying for God to come. So let's now focus on just some detail of these names. I'm going to focus on something that jumped out at me, because it might well have also jumped out at you. Because I don't know if you noticed like I did, there are five women mentioned, either directly or indirectly. So I'm going to focus on these five women for the next few minutes. It's actually really surprising that they're even there, because in a good Jewish genealogy, you wouldn't even mention the women. It's just about the men. And uh, so we need to sort of sit up and take notice for the fact that Matthew's actually mentioned them. So who were they? Well, the first one is Tamar. And Tamar's a very sad um, story, actually. Um, She was married to Judah's son. So Judah being one of Joseph's brothers, actually he got rid of Joseph, and then he went off to Canaan and married a Canaanite woman. Sorry, he was yeah in Cana, married a Canaanite woman, and uh, he found um, and they had a son called Ur, their firstborn, and so Tamar was found as a wife for Ur. Ur then dies, and then Tamar is widowed again by her by Tamar's by Ur's second brother, and Judah has a duty of care as her father-in-law to look after her, so he tells her just to wait until another one of his sons becomes old enough to marry her. But actually, what he does is just sends her back to her father's household, and she gets forgotten. She's pretty much overlooked and uncared for. So she takes things into her own hands and dresses up as a prostitute, and Judah then sleeps with her. So she's then pregnant by her father-in-law. And the story goes that she is about to be stoned to death for for prostitution. And then she reveals that the babies that she's carrying are actually Judah's children. And her life is spared. And she gives birth to two twins, to twins, Perez and Zerah. And uh, Judah actually says, or it's recorded, that Judah notices that he had let her down and that she was more righteous than he was. The next woman is Rahab, and Rahab was a prostitute. I'm sure some of these stories are familiar to you. What's interesting, of course, about Rahab is that she was in the enemy city of Jericho. She uh, was in um, her house when spies, Israelite spies, came to her, and she gave them safety and shelter. She um, told them where to go, and for that, her and her family were spared. Yeah, I chose the one with the scarlet cord because there was a ministry in Amsterdam, uh, a Christian ministry that worked with uh, sex workers and prostitutes, and it was called Scarlet Cord 
because uh, in order to be spared, she let down a scar she showed a scarlet cord from her window, and her and her family were spared. Even before the fall of Jericho, Rahab had a sense of the greatness of God. She said to the spies, the Lord your God is God in heaven and on earth. So dear Rahab, enemy prostitute. And she then marries Salmon, and they have a son called Boaz. And Boaz comes into the next woman's story, Ruth's story. <clears throat> And Ruth's story is a beautiful story, isn't it? A story of redemption. I'm sure one that is very familiar to most of us here. Ruth and her mother-in-law are refugees. They're displaced because of famine and death. And they are utterly desolate, destitute and desperate. And they are dependent on the mercy of others. And it is Boaz, of course, who shows them mercy, becomes their kinsman redeemer. Boaz then welcomes Ruth into his family, and she becomes great King David's great-grandma. We then hear about another wife, another woman, and we hear indirectly about her. She's not named, but Uriah the Hittite, another foreigner, is named. We know, don't we, that King David, that great king, great warrior, beautiful poet, songwriter, wonderful man of God, man after God's own heart, failed very obviously and completely. He was supposed to be with his men at war, but he stayed at home, and it was then that he committed adultery with Bathsheba. I know, a very interesting picture of Bathsheba. It's interesting how history sometimes puts her as the temptress, I think, whereas actually maybe that's not the whole picture, I wouldn't say. Uh, and then, of course, the end of the story uh, is even worse, isn't it? Because David actually orchestrates uh, the murder of Bathsheba's wife, Uriah, who is his loyal servant and general. A very dark moment, a shameful episode in David's life. Interesting, isn't it, that that is highlighted in the genealogy. And last, of course, but not least, is Mary. And I chose this picture because Mary is, looks so young here, actually. And I've often, I've often thought about that and marveled at the thought that Mary really was probably just a teenager. And yet, at that young age, she had that simple trust and obedience in what God was asking of her. She was to suffer shame and disgrace, but she trusted God. So it is actually quite shocking that Matthew mentions these five women, doesn't just mention the women, but highlights these women. And it's not just because they're women. It really is because of who they are, isn't it? It's utterly subversive. If we were telling someone about our family tree, we would highlight the good, the great, the influential. We'd highlight those who've done something. Remember how I introduced my family tree. I talked about my three ancestors who have done great things. But God is different, isn't he? So different. God highlights the outsider. He focuses 
on the people that we perhaps do not focus on. He looks for the insignificant and the marginalized, and particularly the overlooked. Matthew is trying to show us that God's plan, his great plan of salvation, doesn't just include those that we wouldn't necessarily include, but he wants to show us that God actually uses and works through people who will surprise us. As part of God's family tree, we have the abandoned widow, the sex worker, the abused, the desperate refugee, and the young girl asked to face, face shame and disgrace for the sake of the Lord she believes in. And that is the wonderful message, isn't it, that we're going to be celebrating, that God's grace is for all. We've just sung it, haven't we? His grace is wider. His love is greater. There is no one that is excluded from God's work. The young, the broken, the abused, the left out, the marginalized, any of us. He chooses anyone and everyone to partner with. And Jesus, the Messiah that Matthew is introducing to us, demonstrates this for us, doesn't he? Jesus, in his ministry and in his life, did just that. He was always looking at the outsider, at the one on the edges, at the, the ones that felt excluded, that weren't part of the inner crowd. And we know, don't we, from those wonderful writings of Paul that Jesus came to actually break down the things that exclude us or make us feel excluded. He came to bring a new unity between Jew and Gentile, between foreigner and, and resident, as it were, to bring a new unity between slave and free, black and white, Brexiteer and Remainer, all of us. Because Jesus welcomes all of us into his family. It's interesting that uh, nowadays there are some preachers around that are focusing particularly on work in prisons because they have a very strong sense that God will be calling prisoners into his kingdom to further his kingdom, that God will actually be using prisoners to be the new prophets and ministers of the gospel in the generation to come. So that would be really something worth us thinking about and praying into as uh, we start Prison Alpha up in the prison this January. So how are we going to be like Jesus this Advent? Who are we going to consciously include during this festive season? Maybe it is somebody old or somebody young, someone different from us, the neighbor who has very different political views to our own. Or maybe it's somebody who we would just rather not include, the talkative or the annoying. The outsider, you know, is not someone who's necessarily very far away. We have people in our own families, don't we, who feel a little bit on the edge. Or people even in this church. I know that I've talked to a couple of people recently who have felt lonely. And it's a challenge to all of us, isn't it, to ensure that nobody ever, when they come into church or come become part of our family here, ever feels lonely or excluded. 
So what could we do this festive season? I love, um, I really do love Itching Kitchen. And the reason I love it so much is because anybody can go. It doesn't matter who you are. You just sign up and get a meal. Why don't we model that to one another and to others that we know? Invite them round for a meal. Go for a walk with them. Have a coffee with them. Include them. But we must also remember ourselves and not exclude ourselves from what God is doing. How often do we uh, say that we aren't able to be used by God or to be included in what he's doing? Let's be aware that we don't want to exclude ourselves by our own feelings of insecurity or self-doubt or lack of confidence. Because God is working out his salvation. God is on his mission today. He hasn't stopped. He is still drawing people into his family, unexpected and surprising people. He's still using anybody and everybody to fulfill his purposes. So let's be open to what he is doing and let's ask him for his heart and his eyes this Advent season. Let's pray together. Lord God, your grace is amazing. And we thank you that no one is ever excluded from becoming part of your family. And we pray, Lord Jesus, that as your church, your body here today, we would reflect who you are. Thank you for your great love for each one of us. And may we be inspired and encouraged to be like you. In Jesus' precious name, amen.